Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew here with Stephen. Thanks for joining us on another episode, episode five. And uh, good to good to have you on board. As always, am I right? It's episode five. I think that's right. Might it might be six. Something. What about the Bible part two? Uh, we we know we're doing a part two here. Um, if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to part one of this mini series, uh, go ahead and hit pause and would encourage you to start at the last episode uh, where we talk uh, a bit about biblical interpretation, a lot about Peter ends, uh, what what the scripture means to be by inspired uh, and all sorts of other fun things. But we want to pick right up where we left off. And uh, Stephen, if I remember correctly, I think the last episode we ended kind of cl- cliffhangering into some Greg Boyd um, material, which is uh, Greg's another author uh, and speaker and thinker that that we both enjoy and have certainly learned a lot from. I think you, you've you've definitely taken a deeper dive than I have uh, into his work. But why don't you intro us to, to Greg, and we'll dive into not only some of his books and, and material, but ultimately do some unpacking here and uh, br- bring that into the conversation around biblical interpretation. Yeah, so uh, Greg Boyd, he's um, uh, he, he's an interesting guy. He's a he's a he went to Yale Divinity School. He's got a pretty pretty prestigious like academic um, you know past. Uh, he he's a he also is a pastor though. So he's he's one of those um, sort of rare blends of 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 you know actively pastoring right uh, active pastors that are also you know highly academically trained. Um, in, in, you know, the languages and history and all kinds of stuff. So he, uh, he writes a lot about, um, uh, particularly old Testament history. Um, he, he's a, he's an open theist, which I think is pretty cool. We had to do a podcast about that sometime. Yeah. Um, how do you, uh, what's the elevator pitch elevator version, version of what that is? It's basically this idea that, um, God does not know the future, that the future is open. Got it. Uh, the future is yet to be determined, and God does not know it and does not control does not control the future. Um, that would be a fun episode. Yeah, we could have to talk about what you know how all that works out and stuff. But uh, so, and, and and it's funny actually because his <laughs> he's he, he's when he I don't know if this is the right term, but like when he sort of was coming out as an open theist, uh, I believe the Evangelical Theological Society kicked him out. Oh wow. Uh, but he wasn't aware that he was even a part of the society. So like he's, he was so, he was so intense, so edgy. <laughs> he's kicked out of societies. He didn't even know he was a part of He didn't of even know society. he was in. So people just like were, they were kind of proclaiming that he was out, even That's though he right. wasn't, he wasn't even a card carrying member in his own mind. <laughs> I wonder how many organizations uh, I'm a part of that. I don't know. I'm a part of. One day I'll be kicked out of some that you know that don't. I think that's how we'll know we've arrived. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like when we get a a kind of a a cease and desist letter from a group we've never heard of. (laughs) (laughs) So where we left. So um, I forgot the pastoral element, which I think makes makes Greg really interesting, right? Because one thing to write about super. It's one thing to write about all this and be in an academic setting where you sort of have these four walls and the virtual forum and space to throw out anything without necessarily having like real life church repercussions or consequences. But um, that's really interesting. And and I'm sure I, I, I love how he brings the pastoral perspective into into the work he's doing. So where we left off and kind of introing to to some of Greg's work, I think we talked specifically 
we want to talk about Jesus sort of as the, we, we use this language of Christotelic or Christotelic kind of perspective in the Bible. In other words, that Jesus is sort of the ultimate end uh, and kind of the, the goal yeah, of where yeah. all the scripture is going from Peter Renz. And, um, and I think Greg is aligned with a lot of that in that Jesus is ultimately, and Jesus on the cross in particular, is ultimately at the center of the not only the, the good news of of God, but the entire narrative of Scripture, and when and I want to have you you know dive into some of that, but to give everyone a bit of a taste, what what we want to then do is kind of talk about what that means in terms of how we read the Bible and and how we should apply certain passages, but then in view of Jesus and ultimately Jesus on the cross, how do we then sit with what we see in the Old Testament um, at times that can just seem to be you know, to put it one way, I guess, just at complete odds with what we see in Jesus. And yeah. at the worst, like, it's actually kind of a, you know, a bit revolting and, and you know, hard, you know, challenging to swallow some of the language, the violence, um, the war, the genocide, these things that, you know, we can see at a surface level in the Old Testament. Um, so I'll let you kind of handle where you want to start with that. Uh, but but why don't you just dive in and we can walk down that path? He, he has this... Um he has this image or sort of metaphor that I, I really like uh, for for reading the Bible. He says, you know, the Bible. Um, he, he ooh, thank you. Uh, he talks about. Um, sorry, my watch is pouring me a glass of wine. So, <laughs> <laughs> so things are about to be a lot better. No, it's, uh, it's supposed to be actually uh, good. Apparently, I'm too uptight. I don't know. Too yeah, that's what it is. So it's Bible he, stuff. He uses this metaphor where um, he says that, you know, a, a lot of people read the Bible sort of like a recipe book, right? So if you have a recipe book, uh, it really doesn't matter what order the recipes are in. I mean, as long as you know, the ingredients kind of stay together, you know, more or less, it's, it's pretty modular. You, you can just kind of rearrange things and, and it, all, it, it all sort of, it's all true. It all works out. Um, mm. So, you know, if the, you know, you, you could, so what does this look like in practice? It looks like, you know, taking a, a verse from, from this book and then, you know, going a verse, taking, going a few books further and then taking that verse and then looping that one all together with this one and sort of tying them all together and then saying, okay, here's what the Bible says about X, Y, or Z. Creating a clear argument, right, from all over yeah. the place. And no, this isn't, this isn't bad. This is not like, you know, the wrong way to do it. It's just, this, this is, the Bible wasn't really, he argues that the Bible wasn't really intended to function that way. The Bible really uh, se- seems to work more like a detective novel where you're reading along and, and there's this, this plot develops and, and these details happen and there's, there's twists and turns, but then right at the end, something happens that completely like recasts the whole story. Mm. So if you ever read a good mystery, you know, you, you get to the end and there's like these, this, there's this twist that just, you know, makes you go back to all those things that you thought you understood before and, and kind of sheds entirely new light on them. And mm. so for, for, uh, for Greg Boyd, Christ crucified, he says, is that. Uh, and, that and, and that's what the Bible, that, that is sort of the, 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 the turning point that recasts everything into, into different light. Um, mm. Does that Wait, make so sense? I, yeah, I, wow, I, I've never heard it said that way. So rather, so it's one thing to be reading a story or to be reading the Bible, and the kind of the culmination and climactic event is in itself, you know, earth-shattering, unprecedented. You know, that that's one thing. If that's the end of the story, but 
it actually that isn't even that's not even just the end it's almost a means now through which we can we reshape the way we read interpret and understand everything that's happened in the past it it sheds new light it reframes um, yeah. you know what what it is we we've understood and read before so in other words Jesus on the cross ultimately is not just in a linear path you know the end of the story um it's almost like once we get there we need to we need to look in the rear view a little bit and, and change some of our perspectives and now maybe even reread and it helps us to it basically three dimensionalizes you know like a 2d world uh yeah. and all of a sudden adds more color and light than we saw before he's got this quote so the, and, and i guess we probably should tell people the book that we're kind of getting a lot of this from is uh it's called cross vision uh and i believe the subtitle is something about how the cross of jesus transforms how we understand old testament violence Okay. Um, there's this quote, and it's, it's just it it ties in exactly with what what you just said. So he says, "It is not enough to say that Scripture is inspired for the purpose of bearing witness to Christ, though that also is certainly true. It means that we've got to go further and say that all Scripture is inspired for the ultimate purpose of bearing witness to the cruciform through line that weaves together everything Jesus was about and was supremely expressed on the cross." Hmm. So it's not enough just to look at the Old Testament and say, you know, like, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, oh, here's here's a prophecy here that talks about Jesus, and here's another prophecy that points to Jesus, and here we see, you know, like, you know, to read Abraham and, and Isaac and him sacrificing his son. Oh, look, this is like this is kind of like what God did with Jesus. That's not bad, but what he would say is, that, well, that's, that's not enough. You've actually got to you got to go further and say that you know all Scripture was inspired not just for bearing witness to Christ, but for ultimately bearing witness to the cruciform power like revealed in what God has done. And the, cru- the cruciform element of it, I think is what's also unique. It's not just, it points to Jesus and he's God incarnate and then he's resurrected and it's all good. There's the, this idea of being cruciform or cross shaped or kind of defined by the cross. That in particular is the turn. Yeah. And, and so what that means then is then he, he privileges um, the teachings of Jesus over, uh, you know, the other interpret like other, uh, uh, like the, the Old Testament, for example, or um, other places. In the okay, Bible. what do you mean he pretty would privilege it? Like, what one's really God and one's the the other is not, or that we should interpret one, or excuse me, accept one and reject the other? Like, what does he mean by that? Uh, I, I think how he would frame the argument is basically, I've heard him say it like this. So in in John 5, Jesus says that I have a greater witness than John, uh, and then he mentions that all the scriptures point to me. And that's what, 36 through 39. In Matthew 11, um, somewhere around verse 11, uh, he mentions that John the Baptist is, is, is greater. Actually, I've got it open already. Um, uh, for all the prophets prophesied until John came. If you're willing to accept it, he's Elijah who is to come. Let anyone with, with ears to hear listen. So what, basically what he's saying is like Elijah was, John the Baptist was Elijah. He was the sort of, he was supposed to, he was the the, the pinnacle of, of the prophetic tradition. But he was making way for Jesus and whatever is revealed in Jesus, Jesus seems to say um, that, you know, his, his interpretation, what he's teaching is intended to in some way surpass, um, transcend, or kind of, recast all of scripture yeah uh, in new light so so this this isn't coming so this idea that like so that's, that's what i meant by privileging is that like christ the 
the Christ and his teaching, his life, his work, the cross, that's the fulcrum around which everything begins to orbit. Yes. Got it. Okay. So then what does that mean? Uh, what what does that mean for, you know, how we read the how we read the Bible in the Old Testament, even before the violence stuff? So how, you know, what, how do we then approach the rest of the Bible in lieu of, of that reality? He describes... Um, and, and by the way, we see Paul doing this. Like we see the New Testament authors doing this, right? So like we definitely the, do. Yeah. So, so maybe we can give some examples there too. So one of the things that that I've learned even in the last few months and in diving into some of this is, you know, whereas I might be critical of, you know, we can't just take these passages from the Old Testament or the New Testament or whatever. We can't just string together these passages that, you know, that the original readers didn't in, understand to mean what we think it means, and then all of a sudden put this meaning over it to suit our own arguments. Um, Whereas on some level, I still think that's true. At the same time, we do see the writers of the authors of the New Testament actually doing just that, right? They're reading Jesus. And so I think about, uh, and uh, Peter Ann talks about this, um, like the the rock in in following the Israelites in the desert. Yeah. So there are these, you know, a couple accounts um, of this rock that that you know that that the Israelites got water from, and what Paul says, I can't even. You probably know the verse offhand, but what what Paul ultimately says is that that rock through which the Israelites were like, you know, thirst was quenched and, wa- and water came. It was with them in one geography at one point in, in Israel's history, in another geography, another point in the history, and it's because this this rock who actually was Jesus, like some rabbis followed say, like them. followed yeah. them around. <laughs> Like, yeah. so no one reading the Torah, you know, in that original context is thinking, oh, yeah, this is Jesus, the rock that followed around the Israelites, right? But that's read into it, or the Melchizedek passages we talked about as well. Yeah, I mean, um, so he, and he, the author of Hebrews does that, where they, uh, you know, look at Melchizedek and kind of consider the just how he, how he basically kind of kid like comes out of nowhere. And he, they, you know, right. so we they don't say have a lineage. We don't have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's, you know, no, no, uh, no heritage. So he's basically existed forever. And it's a pretty serious statement. Um, just on the surface of it, but, uh, it seems like, it certainly seems like for m- many of the biblical writers, they, what they, when they understand themselves to be, when they are writing, they don't understand themselves to be, journalists, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll, yeah, not, I'll unpack that. They're not reporting, <laughs> That's um, really good. you know, uh, on, 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 on a story. Here's all the de- Here's what, here's how, here's everything that happened. They're not, they're not, they're not as concerned so much about checking all their facts. Um, now this is not, and this is not a, a bad thing. I think going back to sort of this analogy of the incarnation, this, this is just what it means for God to be uh, um, a, 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 a one one writer likes to put a sort of a story bound God. God has bound Himself to our story, and so in some ways He's limited to the resources that we have at different parts in our story. Yeah. Uh, so they don't they don't understand themselves to be journalists, but what they do understand themselves to be doing is they are they are trying to as best they can. Um, well, I, I guess the way I think about it is like the revelation of God isn't so much the Bible. It's not like the, the words that we see. Um, the revelation is what is the reason why we got the Bible. Is that, did you see the difference there? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the, the revelation of God is not ultimately the Bible, but the revelation of God to man is, is what ultimately resulted in this text 
that we call the Bible. In other words, this the, the telling of the story by folks that experience this revelation effectively. Yeah, like so, I, I think of it. I mean, I, I, I kind of use the language sometimes of like the like the revelation is sort of upstream of the text. So something happens. God, God, you know, has reveals himself in some sort of a way, and then these writers begin to write. So out of that revelation comes the Bible. Right. Um, and I, I realize that, that might, I guess to some, to some folks that might sound like a, like a radical departure from, um, orthodoxy or, or, well, you know, what's the, the alternative? What, what is radical about that? Like, what's the alternative view? Well, I, I think what it means then is that, is that, uh, that people, so oftentimes when we, when, when Christians talk about the Bible, um, because this is our, this, this is the tech, this is the only one we got. And, and this is, we believe that this, that God uses the Bible to reveal himself. And, um, this sort of contains the story of our heritage. Um, we want to, we want to protect it. And, and so it's really important and, uh, that, that, that we emphasize, I mean, historically you, you have the doctrine of like infallibility or the inerrancy, the fact that the Bible, there's no errors contained in the Bible would be inerrancy. And then infallibility is often described as like the Bible, just the nature of the Bible and being a divine book means that it's, it's incapable of, of having error. Like it, it can't even, it's not even possible. Flawless, right. Right. Um, so uh, I understand where those things come from. And I certainly, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I can appreciate that want to, to maintain, uh, 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 I don't know, the holiness of God and whatnot. But yeah. I, I think for, I think for me, it makes more sense to say that, well, God is actually okay. He's more, he's more bound to our story than that. And that's part of how that that's just he's okay with that. He's more bound to our story, meaning he's 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 more bound to our story than that. What do you mean by that? Um, he's more so. Um, when these biblical writers, so if we use the example in the last episode of of David's census, right. um, coming from one account that was uh, in the ex, in the exilic period and one sort of post-exilic, uh, and what we talked about was how. The you know the difference there the uh, the the fact that like in one verse it attributes the census sort of to to God uh, and the other one to Satan um, it's not an error in in that you know the journalists didn't get their facts straight it's that they're writing those people are writing to for the purpose of answering like theological questions in a community right so our and story so, we're talking about being bound to our story the story right. that those people were living in. And that's how God reveals himself to us. Like God reveals himself to real people in real times and places in real communities. Yeah. And and none of us exists in isolation. Yeah. So, this, so right. inevitably, you know, when that happens. So like if you're if you are, a, you know, a, a, a nomadic tribe surrounded by, you know, other, um, you, you know, uh, developing I don't know city states or what I, I don't know all, how to the right word for all that kind of stuff but other nations and and each of those nations have their own religious frameworks and how they think about divinity and generally you know divinity is most clearly expressed in in capacity for violence and manipulation and coercion um, well then it's easy to see how the Israelites like that's that those are the resources that are available to them 
that's, that's the world what they, they were living in. And so if God is going to reveal himself to them, he has to show up and let them be where they are so he can take them somewhere new. And so this is why um, Pete Enns and Greg Boyd would say that you see some of these examples where God is depicted as, um, you know, just with such violent language. I mean, some of the um, the genocide accounts, or you can consider uh, Greg Boyd's book actually has a lot uh, where he compares uh, with, with a few specific, you know, Near, East, Near Eastern deities. Um, and he shows how the, the ways that other other religions were describing their deities and how the Israelites basically took that language and, and just we just pointed it at God because that's that's what they understood the divine to be. That's what everyone else was doing. That's what everyone's right. gods were violent, bloodthirsty. That was the, how it worked, and so it made sense that they would apply the same, basically that same label and understanding to their god in order to you know because he is all powerful and you know yeah. you think your god has it all you know is authority is authoritative and powerful and all. Here's ours, you know. Here's what ours looks like. Yeah, yeah, and that's why we see language of you know the you know kill every man, woman, and child, and if you don't, you'll be punished. Not in that language, but those are what we see played out in the story, or you know even the child sacrifice and you know mm-hmm. just really brutal things. And and let's go back to the cruciform, the cruciformity, if you will, of of uh, the New Testament and specifically the gospel story, like that Jesus crucified on the cross willing to be subjected to violence and not subject violence on others, like willing to be the slaughtered lamb. At surface level, the slaughtered lamb on one hand, which we believe as Christians, is the perfect picture of God himself. And in Greg Boyd's framework is what the whole scripture and the whole story of God is pointing to ultimately. Yeah. Um, there's nothing more, you know, antithetical to that image than a bloodthirsty, genocidal God in the Old Testament. All right, absolutely. So, and, so and, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. So, he. So, what's interesting? I mean, um, uh, it's a lot of train of thought here. So, like you were saying, God, uh, if on the cross, like you know, God is sort of subjecting himself to sin. Right, if he um, takes on the sin of the world, right. then maybe we could talk about what that means. So then, then uh, Greg Boyd has this term. He he calls those examples of of, of this the violent God that we see in the old, old in the Old Testament. He calls those 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 examples of of literary crucifixes. So these are these okay. are places where God is allowing His image and and the understanding of Himself in the mind of His people to whom He's trying to reveal Himself to be. He's subjecting himself to their sinful notions of what God is, right? So he's he is he is subjecting himself to their limitations and thinking that God is that the gods are violent, the gods are, um, you know, bloodthirsty. The gods are basically like us, except they have no restraint and no need for restraint, right? So, wow. Um, so wait, wait, let me let me let me just say that again. I think this will help. This is really helpful and interesting. And for some people, you know. It, it, for me, even it's like okay, this is a this is a different way of thinking about it, but I think it could be com- it's compelling. So, what does he call it again? He calls it literary crucifixes. Yeah, these are literary crucifixes. So, just as you know, Jesus is the depiction of God bearing the sin of man. These examples in the Bible where God is depicted as bloodthirsty, violent, just blatantly, and anywhere where God is not presented in a way that is coherent and consistent with what we see in Jesus, in Jesus. because. We're going to, you know, in this view, because it's Jesus, pointing to him. Yeah, it's pointed to him. Then what's happening there is that's a crucifix. That's a right. place so where it, God is. It's a is place bearing. where God is. Li- this is so profound to me, where God is literally bearing the sin, in Greg's perspective, 
the yeah. sin of a people, namely their misunderstanding and application of worldly labels and understandings of those lowercase g gods and idols to him, he's willing to take that on, be misunderstood, and in order to kind of speak in a certain way to a certain people in a time and a place. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't end there. It's ultimately pointing to something in the long term, right? Like, in other words, that is a picture of the sacrifice, the sacrificial crucified God. Like, that is it. That is ultimately what we see in Jesus. And those are like pictures of it in the Old Testament and beyond. Dude, that yeah. is gnarly stuff, man. <laughs> That's like, I mean, that is serious. And yeah, I'm not, it doesn't like it. solve every problem. Um, and that's not the goal, though. No, that's like, the next that episode. Is, yeah, yeah. In the next episode, we're gonna give you all the answers. Uh, but no, that's that's really compelling. So, Go ahead. I, he, he uses this verse. So I, I like how he, um, <laughs> the way he sets up. I mean, the book is pretty long, um, so there's there's a lot we can cover here. But he he points out he, he justifies some of this at least from Paul's writings. We've already talked about how it's how Jesus kind of does this himself. That this this perspective. Generally, this idea that that we should privilege and kind of let what we see in Jesus reshape everything that we, that, we, that comes before Him mm-hmm. that that originates in Jesus or in the in the gospel writers, but then He also traces it into Paul, where like in First Corinthians two, it says that you know I, I think He says I came to, to know nothing except uh, uh, Christ and Him crucified. Yes. Um, or in First Corinthians eighteen or one sorry one eighteen, there's an example where where Christ crucified is described as the wisdom of God and the power of God. And so one of the things this book for me, did for me, man, was like, I, 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 I connect now more with just the, the radical, like the radical notion that the power of God wow. and the wisdom of God is most clearly seen in this man dying outside the city on a cross. Wow. Uh, I mean, that's like, it's, it's one of those things where it's because we hear it so much, we're like numb to it. But if you really, really let that sit in there and you, and you actually trace it all the way through, then like, what, what are you saying is like, power is not violent. Power is not coercive. Power is not, you know, enemy destroying. This power mm. is, it, Boyd uses this, this sort of series of, of attitudes a lot, nonviolent, non-coercive, enemy embracing, um, that's who God is. Wow. And even though it appears in, at, again, surface level in the Bible, that that's not really how it works, that it's yeah. like, that's not what power looks like. And I don't think the point, maybe some of the other critiques of that would be like, well, is Israel, it kind of paints them in a bad light or that they just didn't have the wherewithal or the knowledge or the, you know, they were just applying these false labels to their God or that mm-hmm. even because David, we see even the psalmist, right? Like talking about go slaughter my enemies and take out these people. And is that in Psalm 139? I feel like it's, it's actually, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, um, but I want to see if I'm thinking about what I think I'm thinking about. There's this Psalm, there's about, a, there's a million of them, I'm sure that do this, but it's this, um, yeah. <laughs> so Psalm 139 is this incredible passage. Oh Lord, you search me and you know me, you know where I sit, where I rise. You know, you, you understand my thoughts from afar. There's a ton. Where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I run from your presence? It's just this incredible, compelling 
psalm and how precious are your thoughts are me, O God, if I were to count them, they would outnumber the sand. And then out of nowhere... I have a story about this, by the way. Out of nowhere, verse 19, the ne- and that when I wake, I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against your name wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. I hate them with the utmost hatred, don't they? I mean, it just all of a sudden dives into this. If you were just slaughter all the enemies. Funny story. I actually had, I memorized this psalm at a conference, um, and, uh, I did it before I recited it before a song that I was leading. Um, and I, I kept out verse 19 to 22 for sure. Really? I, oh yeah, definitely. Just, it would have thrown every, everybody off. And that's not really the point. I, but my point is we see this all over the old Testament, but I think it's, it's interesting that when you, when you frame it in this light or the using kind of some of the language that Greg is using, um, yeah, Man, that really to me is very compelling. That the the clearest picture we see of the power of God is ultimately not a power that looks like all the other empires and powers of every other god, namely the biggest military, the 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 loudest, you know, the the again, the largest, the loudest, the most violent, the most destructive, um, but the most but rather it's the most life-giving, the the most, you know, self-denying willing to be misunderstood, abused, like you said, outside the city, hanging on a cross, rejected by all. That's the clearest picture we have of what this God is really like. Yeah. You know, and there's, we have to, sometime we'll have to do an episode, maybe on Moltmann's book, The Crucified God. Yeah. Um, that's a hugely influential book. And he makes the point that, you know, the risen Christ, when Christ is risen and, and, you know, that's in the Bible, like Christ risen is sort of like, that's, that's, you know, he's that's the, 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 the evidence, that's the, the demonstration that he has taken the reign. You know, that, that, like it says in Matthew 28, all power and authority on heaven and earth have been given to me. And yet Christ crucified still, or, or Christ risen still has the marks of the crucifixion. So it's the crucified ah. Christ. It is the crucified Christ who is the one who takes the throne in resurrection. Yeah, we um, see that within, even in the, revel- in the revelation you know, passages like that. It's a slaughtered lamb. Yeah. Like so that is, that is the lamb. Yeah. Bloody slaughtered, like to be crucified. I mean, to be slaughtered. It's just, that's awesome. So, so this kind of begs this question for me and I'm being a little bit tongue in cheek and exactly how I'm going to phrase it, but how then do we then understand the Bible as the word of God? Um, and just to use the, some of that language specifically, like, Another way to put it, is the Bible then the Word of God? Um, does it claim to be the Word of God? And what is that? And that language is obviously like loaded, loaded for, for us. Um, mm. I don't necessarily mean... I think what we tend to mean by those questions is, is, is the Bible really God's Word? Interesting, like meaning like what God has to say about about things like, is it God's word written down in a text, his literal words, like as he would say it written perfectly, or is it God's word? What's interesting is like biblically and correct me here, but biblically the word of God, the logos is ultimately seen first John one 14, excuse me, John one 14 
in Jesus, that Jesus, that the word became flesh, this word of God or breath, the logos of God ultimately becomes flesh and is actually a person, yeah. a human. And, and that goes back to the Greg Boyd stuff. But does the Bible actually claim to be the word of God? So like in Hebrews four, you know, I would, I think back a lot to, to talk, even doing Bible studies with others or with myself, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. Um, it, I always interpreted that historically as the Bible, like the Bible is the word of God. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. Like, do you, do I believe that this Bible is that? And actually, I think it's talking about, is it actually talking about Jesus? Like if Jesus is the word of God and he's the best picture we have of who God is, how does that fare with this language around the Bible being the word of God? It's a, it's a, it's an interesting question. I mean, there's, there's, um, you know, and Brian Zahn talks a lot about this. He says, I some love great, how he talks about that. Yeah. He's done some great stuff on it. No, I know. I want, I, I asked you a question. So I've noticed in listening back to these episodes, I often ask you a question and then I start to answer it myself. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of a question, but I want to hear your thoughts on that. Um, is the, so is the Bible, the word of God, is that the question? Yeah. But dude, if you, I think you're not going to get out of this one unscathed. That it might not be a good one to try to because you could say no, it's not. But this Bring is what I mean by that. No, go ahead, you answer it. But if you <laughs> say okay, no, it's not the word of God. I think there are certainly people that are really listening to go. Oh wait, you don't think the Bible's actually God's word or it's not inspired or something? So hopefully, let's just let's do our little asterisks and say hopefully you've listened to the last couple hours of content. That's obviously not what yeah. we're saying. Um, but if you say yes, like the Bible, yeah, it is the word of God. Well, it's really it's not because. Jesus is the Word of God, and this contains Word – help us understand who the Word of God ultimately is and what God's actual words may or may not have been. But this is not the flat, be-all, end-all, best picture we have of God. That that was Christ. It's a whole book. Okay. You know, I, I think I, – I would probably start with just the question itself. So is the Bible the Word of God? Let's think about this image of God for a minute. Does God have words? What are words? These are these are these are these are our our, our sounds that we use to 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 that to sort of to represent things that have meaning, and they come out of our mouths. In what sense does God have that? Does God have a mouth from which He speaks? Mm. Does he have Does he have a body that has a mouth? I mean, so the, if you can't, if if you begin to really sort of work through the language, the, the language, and, and and what we're talking about, it becomes pretty clear that no no matter what, no matter how you answer the question, we're we're, we're dealing in we're talking about God. And I, mean, like I, said, I think, like we said before, we can more accurately speak about what God is not than what He is. And yes. so anything anything that we say. You know, so here, this is the word of God. There's some, there's some truth and some falsity there. God doesn't really have words and a mouth, and it's just not like that. It's different, but that's the best language that we have to get at what we're talking about. And so, I, I, I am comfortable in saying that the Bible is this book that that is inspired. That God has. Um, it's just kind of a. It's 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 simultaneously. I don't know to what degree it's both or. or you know which one is more than the other, but it's both. It's it's both sort of God's revelation to us, and it's also the accounting of of our sort of realization of who God is and what He's like. Uh-huh. Um, 
so there, there, there's there's momentum and trajectory there. Um, so that's why you have things like the sacrificial system built into law, and then it's you know kind of questioned and and, and ultimately you know uh, minimized, I guess, in some of the prophets. Um, so is the Bible the Word of God? Um, I guess I would say not not literally. Um, and then how does that how does that then pair with our understanding of Jesus as the embodiment of God's word? So the the, the language there, I think it's interesting too, because the, the the word there for word, it's different from how my understanding of that word logos or logos or whatever, I can't remember that's the root of it at least. Yeah, that's the um, word. Is uh it's it's not really like um it's not word like, you know. Jesus is either a noun, adjective, adverb. Like he, he, it's not describing language so much that it's describing sort of like logic. Jesus is like yeah. the clear. Jesus is how God works. Jesus is Jesus is the logic of God, and the best way we can we can express logic is with words. And so the Bible, maybe the maybe that's how it is. Maybe the Bible are the words that we have to gain access to the logic mm-hmm. of how God is most clearly seen in Jesus. Yes. I love that. I'm looking up some of the Greek stuff, so forgive me not looking in your eyes, but um, yeah, so the, okay, so the Bible is ultimately the logic, yeah, so the logic of God, and it, which is kind of what we've been talking about, like this, this self-giving, self-emptying, th- th- in describing what God is like, almost the essence, if you will, like the, it's it's the it's almost this the the essence of God the the breath the logic ultimately expressed in text because that's what we have pointing to a man who really lived who was the who was ultimately the embodiment of that logic and that understanding of God no that's really that's really interesting well and and I'm comfortable you know. I think Jesus is God is most clearly seen in Jesus, but you know I don't I uh, I also think that you know even a lot of conservative evangelical scholars would say that you know Christians don't have a monopoly on truth. I mean God is right. you know, there are other ways that God has revealed Himself. He's revealing Himself all the time in ways that we don't even recognize or realize. Mm. So when I say that the Bible is the Word of God, I don't mean that as a you know. Um, I, I don't mean to use that as a way of kind of posturing in some sort of a debate. Uh, what I'm what I'm saying is, you know, if you come to the if we come to the Bible and we and we and we and we ask the questions that it's meant to sort of answer, and and we and we come looking for we use the words in the Bible looking for the logic of God. I think it, it won't fail to to, to get you there. Mm. I love that. That's great, man. Anything else you want to hit? I, I, I know we could go in a bunch of directions, but I think we're hitting a logical place. We're a logical Ooh. place. Um, <laughs> you had that up there already? I've been waiting to use that thing for so long. Dang it. I just, we haven't been like joking. It's like, in the Old Testament genocide. It's like so not appropriate. Um, well, hey, we're at 40 minutes. Let's... So I think we we put a bow on this, 
And in, in th- we haven't necessarily talked about exactly what we want to dive into next, but hopefully this was helpful. Um, I just want to say that I'm really excited. Just a quick, a couple of really quick housekeeping things. I'm really excited for some of the folks we're hopefully going to have on the podcast really yeah. soon. So to get, so obviously, uh, you know, today it's just been Steven and I talking, but for our listeners definitely want to not give you the impression that, uh, you get to just be in our heads and our conversations, uh, in this small black box of, of our, you know, dialogue. Um, we're going to bring other people on. So I guess we shouldn't give anyone a taste cause uh, of what may or may not transpire, but let's just say we have a couple notes out. We've gotten some feedback from a couple really cool authors, thinkers, professors, um, that hopefully we'll have on in the next, you know, within the next couple months. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, it's looking good so far. And I think the other thing we want to bring in, and we've talked about, you know, even bringing in some folks that, uh, where we might be able to have some, you know, healthy disagreement or just some general, you know, generally taught, you know, inter- intergenerationally, but also maybe from different backgrounds and um, folks that might push back on some of the material we're talking about and, you know, others that are just interested in the conversation that uh, I think could add some nice color to, to the dialogue. So. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of good stuff to come. Stay tuned, everyone, and uh, we'll, we'll keep you up to date. Steven, anything else worth, uh, anything else noteworthy? I think that's it. Uh, leave us a speak pipe message. Yeah. Speak that. pipe. Leave the message. Let's have the dialogue. Cross Vision was the name of the book by Greg Boyd. We'll be sure to put that in the, in the references from the show. And uh, again, thanks for tuning in. Feel free to subscribe if you haven't yet, and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Thanks a lot.